You're listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. We pray that today's message helps you to connect to Jesus for life change. As we begin, I wanted to do a quick poll, a quick survey to try to get to know each other a little bit here in this moment. How many of you would put yourself in the category of a, a more of a spontaneous spur-of-the-moment person. Before I finish the question, people are raising their hands, the spontaneous people. Yes, so some, yep. Uh, maybe you're amidst uh, uncertainty, you're at ease, calm, just kind of go with the flow. Change doesn't scare you at all, kind of live in the moment. If I were to invite you to something after church today, um, something planned lunch or whatever, you would, you'd be jumping in. You're ready to go. Yes, let's do it. Sounds great. And then maybe you'd look at your calendar to see what else you may have planned for that day before making that decision. (laughs) Now, on the other side, how many of you are following more of the planner side of things? Okay, see the planners. Uh, Maybe a little bit uh, more risk-adverse value stability, gravitate more towards predictability and routine. If I were to invite you to the same activity after church uh, today, you may come back with a bunch of questions. Who's who's going? What time? Which restaurant? What's the wait time at that restaurant? How long are we going to be there? And then I got to look at my calendar first to see how this impacts the rest of the things I planned for for the day. You may be hosting Thanksgiving dinner if you're a planner and you already know who's coming. Uh, what you're making, what they're making, where they're sit- sitting. You may even have a spreadsheet that outlines the various dishes that you're preparing, the temperatures that they have in the, in the cooking times, so that everything comes out at the perfect time. All right, maybe that's going a little far. <laughs> but the planners in the room are thinking, that's a good idea. <laughs> well, this may, may surprise you, or maybe not. I am not a very spontaneous person. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> thank you. I definitely lean heavily on the planner side. All the personality profiles, all the tests point in that direction for me. I love efficiency, productivity. I love uh, strategy, developing steps for things. Yes, I love spreadsheets and checklists. Some of you are judging me or thinking I'm weird for that, but stability and order bring me peace. That's the way I lean. Well, I have four daughters. I haven't even gotten there yet. I think, I think they get frustrated with, with me at times um, because they are, three of them are, are teenagers. One is close, uh, close to be a teenager and they're busy. The older they've gotten and now the busier it's become between sports and dance and social activities and church activities and school activities times four. Did you catch that? It's complicated. And so, Nikki, my wife and I, each week uh, on Sunday afternoons, we have a meeting where we look through the calendar for the week, looking at the various activities, who's picking up whom, and where do we got to go, and when can we possibly have dinner together? Let's plan towards that, uh, even if it's 8.45 p.m. uh, on whatever night it is, because that's a priority. So we look at that, plan that out. And then the girls, later in the week, will submit five new ideas that complicate the plan that we discussed on Sunday. So what I've done is I've created a Google form that has 50 questions (laughs) asking for specific details related to their desired activity. I'm joking, I I didn't do that. I thought about it. Uh 
And I apologize to them in the first service for the way the Lord's wired me and all the questions I ask. I'm trying to grow in this area. Now, seeing the room, we know we have a spectrum of people, uh, more planners, more spontaneous, but I think regardless, all of us would like to journey through this thing called our life with as few as roadblocks, detours, and breakdowns as possible. We want things to go according to plan. We have a certain level of desired expectations, right? But not everything does. Even on, the, even on the way in this morning, I hit a deer. So I'm, I'm, I have a plan on getting to church at a certain time, and all of a sudden I hit a deer, and that my plan was out the window. The deer, I think, was okay for those that were concerned about that, but just created stress, stress and complications for the morning. So not everything goes to plan. We live in an imperfect world marred by sin, the effects of sin, and an enemy, Satan, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy we simply need to look at this world and what's going on. I was talking with one of my daughters uh, earlier this week about school shootings, specifically the one at Covenant School that happened earlier this year. We have laws enshrining abortion in state constitutions. We have the war in Ukraine. Pastor Danny and I were talking and couldn't believe that it had been over a year and a half since that it had occurred. It started and still going on. And then not too long ago, we have a terrorist group, Hamas, go into Israel and commit horrible things, atrocities. It's, it's bad. And being a pastor, the, I see a small slice of the personal things that are going on in our church family, from loss of job to looking for a job, to cancer, to terminal illness, giving months to live, to mental illness, broken relationships, Accidents that have life-altering implications. And even death of close family members or friends. For me and my family, Thanksgiving is different because a couple years ago, we entered the month of November with a certain plan and expectations of what it would play out. But my father-in-law got sick, went in the hospital, and never left. Grief runs deep. I'm not sure I believe in the phrase that time heals all wounds. And we look at scripture and we see biblical examples over and over. You have Joseph in the Old Testament who is sold into slavery. His family human traffics him. You have Job who lost everything in the day, in one day. You look at the New Testament, you see the disciples um, watch their teacher and friend be arrested, beaten, and crucified. Left confused because things weren't going according to the plan that they thought they had. You might be thinking, well, John, this is depressing. <laughs> but my hope is that as we close out the book of Daniel, we will be encouraged and challenged to have a picture of God that is bigger than a holiday Hallmark story that in the midst of the turmoil of this world, we can find strength and hope as Daniel did. Because he was marked by a God who is sovereign and good. And as we find that strength and hope, we will be able to rise up in this current culture of compromise. So I've titled today's message, Finding Perfect Hope in an Imperfect World. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today.
Um, and Lord, uh, we can find hope because of you. And this world is broken. We live in an imperfect world. We, uh, and you know intimately the details of every one of those situations that people are walking through right now. I don't. And so, Lord, I pray that you would speak and have hundreds of conversations with individual people speaking to those circumstances this morning, that you would encourage hearts, Lord, as we look to you through your word, may we encounter you and leave here changed. In Christ's mighty name we pray, amen. So if you have a Bible, please turn to Daniel chapter 10 with me. Chapters 10 and 12 are the third major vision found in the second half of Daniel, chapter 7 through 12, that outline uh, specific things that are happening in the future, future realities. Chapter 10 is the prelude to the detailed vision in chapter 11. And then chapter 12 it gives a conclusion to the vision as well as the book as a whole. And some of the Daniel series that you may have seen at other churches uh, really focus in on chapters 1 through 6. And don't get to 7 through 12, because 7 through 12 can be difficult and confusing. And even Daniel's perspective, we'll look at this in a minute, but verse, or chapter 12, verse 8, he says, I heard, but I did not understand. Thank you, Daniel, because as I've studied this over the past week or so, uh, there's lots of times I, I don't understand this. But what we're going to try to do is look through these last 79 verses and really ask God, what would you have for us in this moment? There's a lot there. So picture your Thanksgiving meal this week. Maybe you're eating turkey or ham or both. And a sweet potato casserole with uh, um, brown sugar on top. It's like candy. I, I love that stuff. That's my favorite. <laughs> Mac and cheese, uh, green beans, mashed potatoes and gravy. Get to the desserts, apple pie, pecan or pecan pie. I don't know, whatever one it is. But you sit down at the table, now pretend you're a vegan or eat gluten-free only. You're probably going to get up from the table leaving a lot there, right? Well, as we look at this, as Pastor Dave mentioned last week, we're not going to drill into all of the details. We're going to leave some on the table. Maybe you can look at some of that on your own as well. But Pastor Dave mentioned, I love what he said, looking at prophecy shouldn't just satisfy our curiosity Rather, it should burden us for the mission of Christ. And so that's the lens we're going to look, uh, pursue as we dive into this. Picking up in chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a revelation was given to Daniel, who was called Belshazzar. Its message was true, and it concerned a great war. The understanding of the message came to him in a vision. So as we've seen in other instances throughout the book of Daniel, we are told when this is happening. We're given a historical marker. This is about 536 BC, and it's about two years after chapter 9, which makes Daniel about 85 years old. He's in his mid-80s at this point, and he's given this vision. Here we see a message from God was revealed to him. What do we know about it? Well, first we know that the content was true and about a great war and conflict. And then we see Daniel's response. At that time, I, Daniel, mourned for three weeks. I ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched my lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. So we see Daniel mourning, praying, and fasting in his response. Why did he mourn? It doesn't say specifically, but there could be numerous reasons or a combination of them. One, in Ezra, we know that the exiles were returning to Jerusalem, but it was a really small group, and so maybe he was discouraged by that. And the exiles there were, were uh, being persecuted and being uh, uh, pushed against. And so maybe he heard those reports back that that was happening and that caused his heart to grieve. 
Or maybe he was upset that he couldn't go. He was stuck in Babylon for whatever reason, and he couldn't go back to Jerusalem. Combination of those, I believe he was mourning also as part of this vision. In verse 12, it says that he set his mind to gain understanding. He's trying to understand this thing as we'll see. It's overwhelming to him. Verse 4, the curtains being pulled back. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, the Tigris, I looked up and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like topaz, his face like lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and his voice like the sound of a multitude. The first question is, who is this? Some people say that this is an angel and say that David or Daniel was interacting with an angel throughout this passage. I actually think this is a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ, what is known as a Christophany. And where I get that from, looking at Revelation 1, we see John's description in his vision of Jesus. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. So here we have Daniel receiving this vision, praying and fasting for three weeks, and then Jesus shows up. What an amazing picture. I, Daniel, was the only one who saw the vision. Those who were with me did not see it. But such terror overwhelmed them that they fled and hid themselves. It's kind of like Paul's encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus. His companions didn't see what was happening, but they heard because they were such terror overwhelmed them, they fled and hid themselves. So I was left alone. Gazing at this great vision, I had no strength left. My face turned deathly pale and I was helpless. Then I heard him speaking. And as I, was, as I listened to him, I fell into a deep sleep, my face to the ground. Again, that was similar to John's response in Revelation. Daniel was undone and the encounter with God just wrecked him. And in verse 10, it says, A hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And based on the context, I believe this is a new heavenly being, an angel that has come to Daniel to help explain the vision and encourage him in this moment. And he said, Daniel, and I love the language here, it reminds me of what Mary heard in the New Testament, you who are highly esteemed, consider carefully the words I'm about to speak to you and stand up for I have now been sent to you. And when he said this to me, I stood up trembling. Then he continued, do not be afraid, Daniel. Since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to them. So we see is that an answer was given on day one. The prayer was being answered. Daniel was praying for 21 days, though. And so this is a, a, a freebie, a, a subpoint. This isn't part of the outline. But as I was going through this, we see Daniel committing to prayer and fasting for that long. Um, I was encouraged to keep praying. I want to encourage you to keep praying. Maybe there's something going on in your life that you've been praying for for years. I know there is things in my life that I've been praying for that the Lord hasn't answered yet. Some of you ha- have been on that journey with me and asked me uh, about those prayers, and I'm so thankful for the prayer warriors in this church. Thank you for praying. 
May we continue to pray. Pray until something happens. Keep praying. He hears. We don't see everything that's going on, though. And so what does Daniel see? Verse 13, but the prince of the Persian kingdom resisted me 21 days. Then Michael, another angel, one of the chief princes, came to help me because I was detained there with the king of Persia. Now I've come to explain to you what will happen to your people in the future for the vision concerns a time to come. So the curtain's pulled back. It's revealing the spiritual battle taking place, showing that angels and demons exist and they are engaged with one another in spiritual combat. Verse 15, while he was saying this to me, I bowed with my face toward the ground and was speechless. Then one who looked like a man touched my lips and I opened my mouth and began to speak. I said to the one standing before me, I am overcome with anguish because of the vision, my Lord, and I feel very weak. How can I, your servant, talk with you, my Lord? My strength is gone and I can hardly breathe. Again, the one who looked like a man touched me and gave me strength. Do not be afraid. You who are highly esteemed, he said, peace Be strong now, be strong. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, speak, my Lord, since you have given me strength. Again, given encouragement and strength because this was so overwhelming. Verse 20, so he said, do you know why I have come to you? Soon I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But first, I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. And so here the curtains pulled back. Spiritual battle is real. It is happening. So in order to find perfect hope in an imperfect world, it brings us to the first point based on the text that God is sovereign over the spiritual battle. Fear not, peace be with you, be strong. John Piper says this about the spiritual battle. Take the supernatural seriously and realize that we are in a warfare that cannot and should not be domesticated by reinterpreting everything in the biblical worldview so that it fits nicely with secular naturalistic ways of thinking about the world. Be ready for the extraordinary as well as the ordinary ways that evil spirits work. Don't be presumptuous as though demons were weak and don't be anxious as though they are stronger than Jesus because they're not. In Ephesians, we're given a a similar admonition and encouragement as Daniel was given. It says there in verse 10, finally be strong, be strong. Be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. And we see this over and over in the Gospels as well, where the demons respond immediately to the word and power of Jesus. He is stronger. There is no question that our God is sovereign over the spiritual battle. So friends, fear not. Peace be with you. Be strong. Moving on to chapter 11 here. What follows here in verses 1 through 34 are one of the most detailed um, records of fulfilled prophecy. For Daniel's perspective, these verses are about specific details from the other visions that he had received um, or about his future. But these verses specifically for us are actually historical background of things that have already happened. They contain about 470 years of world history 
with about 135 fulfilled prophecies during the dark ages of the Bible after Malachi and before Christ. Some critics argue that these are so accurate, these verses, that Daniel had to be written after all of them had occurred somewhere around the mid-100s B.C. In other words, predicting the future is impossible, so it had to be written or added later. Well, this is what God says in Isaiah 46. Remember the former things, those of long ago, I am God, and there is no other, I am God, and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say my purpose will stand, and I will do all that I please. And so how do we answer those critics? Well, I believe Daniel captured these events prior to them happening for a few reasons. One, we look at the text at face value. The writing style supports it as well as the text claims it. Daniel is writing this in the first person. So either this is a miracle or it's a lie. And we also have historical documents, both the said Dead Sea Scrolls and the um, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, somewhere around 285 to 240 BC. Both contain the book of Daniel and give very strong evidence that some of these prophecies happened after they were at, or some of these prophecies happened after, um, prior to all of um, them being filled. The text was written prior to that. Sorry. Verse three, Jesus points to Daniel, importantly here, So in the New Testament, Jesus points to Daniel in Matthew 24. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, which we'll get to, spoken through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. So Jesus is pointing back to Daniel and saying, this is what Daniel said about it. So he's referring to it. So as we survey this text, we're going to high level here. This brings us to our second point of how to find perfect hope in an imperfect world, and that's because God is sovereign over the mess. God is sovereign over the mess. And this is like watching a football game that you already know the score of. How many of you this week over Thanksgiving will be watching football? Some, yes. I was talking to Pastor Bryce uh, on Tuesday, talking about an ideal Thursday and what that looks like, and it included lots of food and lots of football. Well, I came home uh, earlier this week, and one of my daughters was actually watching the replay of the Detroit Lions-LA Chargers football game, which, yes, go Lions. I'm a Lions fan. Um, our mantra over the, year has, over the years has been the team that almost always almost wins. <laughs> but they are doing pretty well this year. So maybe this is the year. Another mantra I've <laughs> succumbed to myself to <laughs> through the years. But as we enter into the details of this prophecy, though, it's like me watching the replay of this game with my daughter. I already know what's going to happen. It's not a big deal if Detroit has a bad play or makes a penalty or if the defense can't stop uh, the Chargers from coming down and scoring again and tying the game. I know the score. I'm at ease. It's secure. And so chapter 11, I encourage you to study it in greater detail. There's so much history linked to these prophecies that we can look back and say, yep, God knew, God knew, God knew, where he demonstrates his power through fulfilling prophecy. Unlike Daniel, we did know, we do know the final score there. So in verses 1 through 20, just high level, we see what happens with Persia to Alexander the Great. 
And then in 5 through 20 specifically, this battle back and forth between the kingdoms of the north, uh, Syria, and the kingdoms of the south, Egypt. All with Israel in the, as the bullseye and the crosshairs between these two kingdoms. In verse 21, going down there to 34, dialing and focusing on one specific king in particular, Antichus Epiphanes, who would be despised in a foreshadowing and template the template of someone yet to come, the Antichrist. And let's read about him briefly here in 21. It says, he will be succumb, uh, succeeded by a contemptible, a despised, despicable person who has not been given the honor of royalty. You see, Antichus Epiphanes was not in the line of succession, but he rose to power. In verses 22 through 28 reveal some of his horrible exploits, but let's look at some of them starting in verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastlands will oppose him. This is Rome. Rome is on the scene. Antichus Epiphanes is going down to attack um, Egypt. And Rome comes in and says, no, you're going to have to deal with us if you continue on. And you need to make a decision by the time you step out of the circle. And the commander drew a circle around Antichus Epiphanes and said, you need to make a decision. And he knew that uh, he could not stand against Rome, so he was humiliated, which says here, he will lose heart. And what did he do? He will turn back and vent his fury against the Holy Covenant, the people of Israel. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Those who are wise, those who have insight, those who are true believers will instruct many. Though for a time they will fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered, when they fall, they will receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. And so what we see here is Antichus Epiphanes persecuting and plundering uh, the Jewish people multiple, multiple times. He massacred tens of thousands of them. He killed the high priest, put in his own, desecrated the simple temple. He sacrificed pigs, spread the blood throughout it. He destroyed Jerusalem and the temple in 170 B.C. He tried to purge religious customs from Judah. In 167 B.C., he put an altar, and this is the abomination of desolation. He put this altar dedicated to Zeus in the temple and made sacrifices there. And we see historically that the Jewish people were martyred for their faith because they refused to follow his religious system. Now as we move to verses 36 through 45, there's debate on who these are referring to because the events don't line up specifically with Antichus Epiphanes. And so I want to acknowledge that this is one of those potentially confusing sections of Scripture. I lean towards what some theologians propose as a gap between verses 35 and 36, the gap in time, where it's talking about appointed times to until the end of time, which is jumping to the end times, which is our future, and where verses 36 through 45 are referring to the Antichrist. But regardless, jumping down to verse 45, we see that he will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain. Yet he will come to his end and no one will help him. And we know in Revelation, it tells us that the Antichrist will be thrown into the fiery lake. 
And so as we surveyed chapter 11, we see that it would be a mess and a dark time for Israel. But what we see is fulfilled prophecy that what was revealed to Daniel happened exactly as it was written. And so I can only imagine that the people of Israel, as they were walking through this historically and these things started to happen, they looked at the book of Daniel and they said, yes, the Lord said this would happen. Yep, happened there, happened there. It was like a life raft to them walking through trouble to see that God is sovereign over the mess that they're walking through, over the events of human history, over their personal lives. And because of that, because we see that the Lord is sovereign over the mess and we have fulfilled prophecy, that leads us to our final point of how to find perfect hope in an imperfect world, is that God is sovereign over our future. God is sovereign over our future. Picking up in chapter 12, at that time, again, this is now our future, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise There will be a time of distress such as has not happened from the beginning of nations until now. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. There's hope. And so that's something the Jewish people could cling to. We will be delivered. There's hope for us. Verse 2, multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Verse 2 amazingly articulates in the Old Testament the resurrection and actually the double resurrection. We, see, we know that every one of us will die at some point unless Jesus returns. We will die and rise up either, as, the script, as it says here, either to everlasting life, if our name is found written in the book, or everlasting contempt. And so those that are in Jesus, we find hope in the resurrection. What does that mean? Verse 3, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So this should encourage us. This should challenge us to live on mission, to connect people to Jesus for life change. As we've already said, every one of us will die at some point and there'll be a resurrection for all of us, everlasting life, everlasting contempt. So if you don't know Jesus, now is the time. I pray and hope that you would turn to him today. He came and lived the perfect life and died the death that we deserve. And he extends that gift to you. And and my prayer and hope is you can stop listening to me and do business with the Lord and ask him uh, to come into your life, to be your savior. But if you do know and follow Jesus, based on this verse here, who are you leading to everlasting life? I want my life, and I hope you, you want your life to shine like the brightness of the sky, to live, to lead people to everlasting life. Eugene Peterson, in his paraphrase, the message says this for this verse, those who put others on the right path of life will glow like stars forever. Beautiful picture. All right, verse four, we're gonna fly through these last verses here. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll, secure, preserve them until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. And then we see a couple questions asked in verses five and six. Uh, An angel asks the question, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? So even the angels didn't know. Verse seven is given an answer. It will be for a time, times, and half a time. 
And we're not going to unpack that today or, or point to what that could be. But Daniel, again, I'm, uh, verse 8, I heard, but I did not understand. So I don't, I don't understand completely. I have ideas, but... So he asks, my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? And the response is, go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Go your way. Verse 11, there's some date number of days there, 1,290 days, and then some extra days making 1,335 days, which again, I don't completely understand, but the response and encouragement to Daniel is, as for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. So as we close out chapter 12 and the book of Daniel as a whole, we're reminded that we can have perfect hope in an imperfect world because our God is sovereign, reigning over, all, over everything. Over the spiritual battle that we may face, Jesus is stronger. Amen? He's sovereign over the mess of this world and what we walk through. And he's sovereign over our future. It is secure. We will be delivered. And like Daniel, as we close out uh, this book, we are encouraged to go our way, to pursue being faithful in this life. Even in his 80s, Daniel's life was committed to an intimate relationship with God. The way we talk about it around here is one of our mission measures. He was pursuing to enjoy God fully. We see his life characterized by prayer. As we go back through the book, you can see chapter 2 to chapter 6, where it talks about us three times a day praying. We look at chapter 9, a big lengthy prayer there. In chapter 10, three weeks praying and fasting. He spent significant time with the Lord. And that's why it's one of our measures. We want to cultivate that. We want to pursue that as a church family to enjoy God fully, to spend time with him And as we look through the book and survey it as well, we see that Daniel was committed to the mission. Both as a teenager earlier in the book and then someone in his 80s, he was committed to the mission of God and what God had called him to do. So all of us, if we have a pulse, we have a purpose. 2 Thessalonians 3.13 encourages us to never tire of doing what is good. Never tire. Be strong. Let's pray. Lord, as we close out uh, the book of Daniel, we thank you for your sovereignty over the spiritual battle, over the mess, over our future. Lord, I pray as we understand these things and that they are secure, that we would rise up together to take a risk, to take steps of faith remaining faithful in our current culture of compromise. Lord, help us. May we shine like the brightness of the sky above in the dark world, leading many to righteousness. Connecting people to Jesus for life change, even as persecution comes, because we know that the God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. And even if you don't, you are still God. You are still sovereign. You are still good. And we are yours. And our future is secured. Church family, if, as we close out our service, if you are in a season of waiting or battle, 
are walking through the mess of life right now and you need prayer, you can come to one of us. We'll be to the sides. If you want to just come and pray to the Lord, I encourage you to just come down to the front and pray. And Lord, as Romans 12, 12 reminds us, may we be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, and faithful in prayer. It's in your mighty name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to sermons from Southbridge Fellowship in Raleigh, North Carolina. If you have a question about the message you just heard, email us at info at sfchurch.com. For additional resources or service information, visit us at sfchurch.com.